We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to Chasing Hardware, the podcast that sits down with the sports figures you grew up with and hears their stories. Welcome to Chasing Hardware. I'm your host, Rich Lamello. My guest today enjoyed a 13-year career in the NFL, using his cannon of an arm to guide the Houston Oilers to consecutive AFC championship games in the late 70s. Playing for icons such as Bum Phillips, he was a tough-as-nails QB who introduced the league to military-style flak jackets and in a roundabout way, helped usher in the use of instant replay. He's also enjoyed a long career in drag racing and wrote a really entertaining autobiography called Taking Flack, Life in the Fast Lane. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Chasing Hardware, Mr. Dan Pastorini. Dan, welcome. Thanks, Rich. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's good to uh, good to have you on the show. Um, and there's a, lot, there's a lot to cover here, so uh, so <laughs> let's, let's jump into it. Um, Dan, you're you're born in San Francisco. You're born and raised California guy. Um, mm-hmm. Mom and dad owned a restaurant in Sonora, which, from what I can tell, is kind of halfway between the Bay Area and like the Nevada line. Tell me a little bit about you know kind of growing up and and you know family life, how you got into sports. I know your dad was a hell of a baseball player. Tell mm-hmm. me a little bit about growing up. My dad was a butcher by trade, and he was second generation Italian over here. Uh, my my grandparents were both first generation, naturally, and my grandfather was a carpenter by trade. So my dad decided to get into the restaurant business and move up to California. Through his years in the Bay Area, he got to know some people up there. One of them was a guy by the name of Dave Bonavia, who had, he was in charge of all the vending machines in Tuolumne County. Hmm. And Dave t- kind of coaxed my dad into moving up there and opening up a restaurant with a little back room in the back because that Tuolumne County, Calaveras County was like you said, halfway between San Francisco and and Lake Tahoe. Well, this was kind of a weekend place for the Bay Area people to come and and gamble a little bit. So it was kind of wide open. And, uh, you know, my dad opened in October 19th or something in 1949, I was six months old. And he had a little back room with a crap table and blackjack table and a wheel of fortune and a couple of slot machines. And New Year's Eve that year, the feds came in and shut down Tuolumne County and Calaveras County. 
So all the gambling machines, all the gaming machine, all the tables and all the places shut down. And we became a town, well, we were a town of 1300 people back then. And we became a town of less because a lot of the people just moved out because there was no industry there. You come to Sonora on a weekend back then and the play, the whole town was jumping. And uh, now, you know, my dad's struggling through going through months of just serving three or four dinners, you know, food spoiling and have to give it away to, you know, throw it away or give it away to, you know, the help and stuff. It was tough. And then finally, about five years later, a uh, company, or no, about 10 years later, uh, UOP, University of Pacific, had their drama school. And we were between Sonora and Columbia. Okay. Sonora and Columbia in the gold rush country were big mining towns, Columbia especially. In fact, the largest gold nugget ever found in Sierra Nevadas was found about a mile from where our house was hmm. back in the 18, 1850s. And uh, they had, you know, a little town with little markets and bars and everything else. So they came in and opened up this Fallon House Theater and they would come up and do summer stock and they would have different plays. We had Robert Culp come up there. Uh, we had, uh, you know, Bill Cosby. All these people came up there to do that theater. And then over the course of the years, there was this TV series called The Tales of Wells Fargo with Dale Robertson. And there were the Bonanza people came up there. So we became a location for Hollywood to come up and and have these movies and series shot. And, you know, my dad had a pretty good reputation and we'd get all the stars to come out to the restaurant. And we got all these autographs and we were kind of goo-goo-eyed over all these these people and got to know, them. you know, some of them got to know intimately. And uh, it was kind of a fun thing for a kid growing up. But it was a it was a great place to grow up. You know, my nearest neighbor was a mile away, uh, but, you know, you learn to hike, you learn to play outside. You didn't, we didn't have video games or anything like that. We only had three stations on TV and those were usually off by 11 o'clock at night. Right. So, you know, it was, it was pretty creative in, in, in doing things and getting outside, but I was always kind of an out, outdoor kid. I like, I like to hunt and fish and stuff like that. Yeah. And you had, you were the youngest of four. You had a brother like five years older than you, Butch. Correct. And, and you, you know, kind of tagged around after him, it sounds like. And uh, yeah. he was a hell of an athlete. Um, you ended up going to Bellarmine Prep. Well, let me, let me take a step back for a second. Your, um, your dad was played in the Pacific Coast League against guys like Joe DiMaggio. It was, uh, I don't know if it was the Pacific Coast League then, but it was like a city league. Okay. And you had Lefty O'Doul, Joe DiMaggio, you know, all these guys were playing in that league that that wound up getting, you know, drafted. Yeah. And my father was drafted, not drafted, but signed. And right. my father had an opportunity to sign with the Yankees. And he was 18 years old. And this scout came up to him and he said, he said, how old are you, kid? And he, you know, I'm 18. So he said, well, we have to get your parents' permission. So he went, took him to the house and introducing my, my mother or my grandmother who was meaner than a junkyard dog and she just wasn't going to have it she said no she says my son's not going to play baseball he's not a bum he's going to get an honest job <laughs> so he was a butcher for i don't know how 15 years or so before he got in the restaurant business for 37 years gotcha. but it was his dream to have one of his sons have the opportunity to play pro professional sports because that was that was his dream 
And naturally, when you hear your father say something like that, you subconsciously or maybe not subconsciously, but you work your ass off because you want him to approve of you as, as a person. So you develop a work work ethic and everything. I, I used to throw rocks at everything. We had a lot of rocks out in the country out there, the gravel roads. And I'd throw rocks at birds, turtles, cans. You know, I had the, the swinging tire and throwing a baseball through it or a football through it and all that. My father always said he's got a quarter of a million dollar arm. And my kid's got a quarter of a million dollar arm. So he was very supportive of me in sports. And that that was my motivation. Yeah. For his approval. And, and- and you you decide ultimately to go to Bellarmine Prep, which is I mean it's boarding school. You have to you're it's over. It's a Jesuit boarding school, yeah. I yeah. had eight years of Jesuit education. Yeah, between high school and college, right? I'm still stupid. <laughs> <laughs> you did okay, but uh, you you go down there. The, the football team there is a powerhouse. I mean, yeah. your junior year, they don't give up a point, which is no. you know, insane. And you know, in addition to football you're a star baseball player, you're a pitcher, even though your, your idol in baseball was Willie Mays, right. For the mm-hmm. giants mm-hmm. You're a pitcher. Um, good enough that the Mets draft you, um, yeah. you, I think they kind of had a sense. You were thinking of going to college to play football. Um, but how close were you to thinking about going pro in baseball instead? Well, I was drafted, I think in the 32nd round in 1967, which was my senior year out of Bellman. And I was, signed, sealed, and delivered, and going to Santa Clara because they allowed me to play both sports. I could play baseball and football. Sure. All the other schools wanted me to play football. I wasn't really recruited as a baseball player, except professionally. So, you know, I wanted to get my education, get it paid for, so my father wouldn't have to pay for it and everything else. And and, uh, so they came up to Sonora. And I remember in, in my dad's kitchen, these two guys were sitting at the end of the table, and my father and I were sitting across from each other. And, and they said, well, you know, I was actually, I wasn't a pitcher. I, I pitched a little bit, <clears throat> but I was a shortstop. Okay. And I, I was kind of a Correa type. I had good range. I could run side to side. I just couldn't run straight. But, you know, I had good range and I had, I had a good arm. And they said, well, we want to make a pitcher out of you. I said, yeah, but I'm, I'm a good hitter. You know, I like to play every day. I don't want to play every five, six days. Yeah, we know, kid, but we want you for your arm strength. You know, <laughs> dumb kid. <laughs> so I'm looking at my father, Dad, what do I do? And he goes, he says, Willie, it's up to you. My father called me Willie till his dying day because Willie Mays was my hero growing up as a kid. And I don't have his picture in here. I've got it up upstairs. But I've got a, a, a picture of him. He was my hero growing up as a kid. I loved Willie Mays. And so much so they're having some kind of a game in Louisville next year. And it's honoring him and, and all the Negro League players. And he's like, it's the Negro League Hall of Fame. And he's like the biggest name that's going to be there. Now, I met him a couple of times when Santa Clara played exhibition games against the Giants. Hmm. And what a, just a wonderful man, just a wonderful, wonderful human being. And, and didn't, didn't uh, break my heart in any way because he was even better than I thought he was. But uh, that was just kind of a, a sidebar. But, but uh, anyway, he, uh, they wanted me to pitch. And my dad says, it's up to you. And I go, God, you know, I, I, I came this close. I, I, and I often wonder what would have happened. <clears throat> it just so happens, the next year, they're the amazing Mets. And they go on to win the World Series 
And they had a couple of guys pitching by the name of Nolan Ryan and Tom Seaver. So what would that have been like if I'd have been able to crack that trio or make that a trio? Legends. But, you know, I don't regret playing football. There were, there were, there were tough times and good times, but they were the best of times too. The worst of times and the best of times. Sure. And you, and you decide to go to Santa Clara where your older brother had gone and who, and he had had success. He was a little uh, college all American, um, which is what they called it back then for the non D1. He was first team both ways. Yeah. He was first team guard and first team middle linebacker junior and senior year. He was five, nine and 195 pounds soaking wet. It's amazing. This guy, let me tell you, people thought I was tough. I'm a puss compared to my brother. Yeah. Tell you, you, he was he was unbelievable. And you decided to 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 follow in his footsteps to go to Santa Clara, even though you were being, you know, San Stanford and UCLA and a bunch of other big times are talking to you. You decided I can do this. I was, yeah, and they allowed me to play um, baseball. That was that was the number one thing. And I knew I'd have a shot to play quarterback right and uh I, I punted as well plus i knew pat malley because he went to all of our games pat malley was the head coach he brought football back to santa clara and my brother was one of the first players to bring back football to santa clara when when they first reintroduced it and back in the day they were a powerhouse but you know this time they were just we're playing teams like uop cal state uh, hayward you know, Cal State, Pomona, San Francisco State, San Francisco State, Humboldt State, you know, Davis, UC Davis, all right. these small colleges. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't big time college football at all. And uh, but it was it was, you know, something that we got a lot of a lot of ink. We got a lot of comparisons between me and Jim Plunkett. Jim Plunkett went to Stanford, which is right down the road from San Jose. So we got compared a lot and, uh, yeah. you know, but he was the big time college player and I was a small college player, but fortunately I was able to play in the East West Shrine game. I didn't play that many games because I was hurt through college. I injured my knee my junior year and senior year against Villanova, partially torn medial collateral ligament, which back then they didn't, they didn't know. They didn't know if you blew, it your, blew out your knee, if you sprained it or what. So for precaution, they put you in a cast for six weeks and then you had to rehab and, and get back. But I only played about probably maybe 10 games my whole career in in, in college. Yeah, so, I was going to say, like your sophomore year, like first snap of first game. Yeah, I'd break my ankle. Break your ankle. And uh, yeah, like you mentioned, two two injuries against Villanova junior and senior year. So, you know, you're playing at a small-ish school and not getting on the field a ton. Right. But obviously, you know, your reputation and when you were on the field got you some invites to some all-star games and you took full advantage of those all-star games. I did. I did. And I was fortunate to be voted captain. You know, the, the scouts wanted to see what I could do against the big college players. And uh, I was voted captain of both teams, all three teams, actually. The uh, Senior Bowl, the East-West Shrine game, and the all-star game. And um, it was very rewarding for me to be voted captain by those guys because, you know, I read about all these guys in Sports Illustrated. They didn't know who the hell I was. They just kind of saw what I did and respected that. So that that meant a lot to me. Yeah. And you and you had been concerned for good reason. Like you said, medicine was a little different, you know, then than it is now. 
when when you t- when you get that final uh, knee injury against Villanova your senior year, you think your career is done. You think your pro career, your shot at a pro career is done. I did. I really uh, did. But you're able to you know kind of break through, and all of a sudden, not only are you going to play in the pros, but it's become <clears throat> quote unquote year of the quarterback, and mm-hmm. it's Plunkett and you and Archie Manning are all going to go you know in the top three. Um, all to teams that are struggling, right? Plunkett to New England, she yeah. to New Orleans, you to Houston. Um, you know, there's a reason why they were drafting first, second, and third. Um, but, you know, t- t- tell me a little bit about the relationship with a Plunkett or a Manning, guys like that. Um, as you're kind of going through the All-Star games, obviously there's probably healthy respect, but there's also probably some pretty serious competition between you. Yeah, but we we never really played in any All-Star games together with the exception of Plunkett and I played in the, the all-star game in Chicago against the bears. Okay. Or uh, against the, uh, not the bears, the uh, Colts, but that was the only time we ever played together. We all kind of played in separate games and I was kind of surprised. He didn't want to match us up. Cause I was really kind of anxious for that. Sure. My whole career, you know, I kind of was in Plunkett shadow, he, you know, playing at Stanford, putting up numbers, but I played at Santa Clara and, but they respected my ability because I was a punter and, and, and a quarterback. And kicked off and kicked extra points. So it was kind of a triple threat type of thing. Sure. But, you know, when we finally got together uh, in the All-Star game, Jim's a different type of guy. I, I Jim and I, you know, we don't stay in touch. Um, you know, um, that whole leaving Oakland with me was a bad taste in my mouth and the way I was treated. So, But I had nothing against him. It was not sure. his fault. Um and then Archie and I just became really good friends. Um, my my first wife, June, was doing a play down in New Orleans, and I went down there with her, you know, called up Archie. Hey, come on, we're playing in an all-star game and we're baseball charity and golf tournaments. So he and I bonded pretty well, we, and we went to a few plays. He introduced me around the, the French Quarter down in New Orleans, and we had a really good time. To this day, Archie and I stay in touch. He, he was born a week before me. And uh, so he's, I call him on the 19th and he calls me on the 26th and we just wish each other happy birthday. Oh, that's cool. That's great. I remember his kids in the backyard and Peyton was given orders back then when he was like seven years old and watching him play in the backyard, wondering, you know, here I'm looking at two Hall of Famers, didn't know it. They should put Archie into the Hall of Fame. They should also put him out to pasture. For study, he's got to he's got to share that bloodline, make more quarterbacks. You know, <laughs> I'm anxious to see grandson Arch. He's yeah. coming to Texas, and they say he's the best of all three. Which is kind of it's kind of a poetic justice because you know Cooper was supposedly the best athlete, all three of them, all four of them, yeah, and he had that, that problem with with and he couldn't play. Yeah, and now he's got his son. And they're touting him as the best one of all. It's going to be fun to watch that. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Yeah, Texas between uh, Arch Manning and Quinn Ewers, they've got yeah, they've got some sweet quarterbacks down there. Yeah, they do, they do. <laughs> um, but and so so you you go into Houston and the team is three ten and one before you get there. <clears throat> the coach they they bring in a new coach who is you know kind of partly responsible for drafting you, Ed Hughes. Um, 
they've got Charlie Johnson, who's been a starter in the league for a decade in St. Mm-hmm. Louis. Mm-hmm. And they draft both you and Lynn Dickey. Now, granted, you've had some injuries and you're coming yeah. from a smaller school, but they, they take two quarterbacks in the first three rounds, you and then Dickey out of Kansas State. Um, and you go into a team that obviously is struggling, but there's some pretty big names. I mean, there's Charlie Joyner and uh, Kenny Burrows and um, mm-hmm. uh, Elvin Bethea, Kenny Houston. Uh, tell me about like you know what that's like. I mean, it's got to be daunting walking into any training camp, excuse me, as a 22-year-old. Um, but you know, what's that like? You've got three quarterbacks and you've got, you know, some talent around you tell me about a little bit about that, you know, first couple of years in Houston. I can understand them drafting Lynn. Um, and Lynn and I, we're, we played in some game together and got to know each other. And Lynn's just one of these guys that if you don't like him, you just, you can't like anybody. He just got a great personality. You love him to death. Sure. And he, um, you know, we came here and we were, it was competition. I mean, you know, we all expected we have to compete for our position and you know, that's just part of the game. And if you're fortunate enough to be the guy, then you go out and play and you, you continue to you play well as you can and, you know, try not to get replaced. But we, you know, we competed against each other, but we had a lot of respect for each other. Charlie Johnson was, a, was a great mentor to come, come in. And he would just, I come off the field, he'd get over my face. Okay. What'd you see? What'd you see? What did why'd you throw here? Okay. Okay. Well, you should go here next time. So keep that in mind. He was constantly teaching. I mean, that was Charlie Johnson. Lynn was, you know, he was, you know, sitting there and he goes, Hey, he says, you know, they're doing this. You know, we always communicated with whoever was in the game. We communicated what we saw. Sure. You take it for what it's worth. If you want to use it, fine. If you don't want to use it, it's up to you. But we, we, we you know, we, we didn't have any bickering. We didn't have any finger pointing or anything like that. Lynn had a terrible injury where he dislocated his hip posteriorly. And I mean, I saw it was against St. Louis in the preseason. And uh, it was one of the ugliest injuries I've ever seen. And, you know, I thought, you know, there for the grace of God go me, you know, but he, uh, he came back and, uh, you know, he was trying to, he rehabilitated and everything. We, we hung out together and, uh, you know, he finally got back and he was competing. And I think it was 74 when Sid Gilman was here. And I think he felt that he could play and he didn't, they didn't, you know, by then they're developing me and he was going to be a backup. He didn't want to be a backup to me. And I don't blame him because he was good enough. He had a hell of a career in Green Bay. Sure. And, uh, you know, I guess, and he, he, he left and uh, he had a heck of a career. No, no doubt about it. And to this day, we're good friends. You know, so I, I've got no regrets. Charlie, I haven't talked to in years. Uh, I know he's he's in Arizona or someplace, and I hope he's doing well. Um, if he hears this, I hope he's doing very well. Sure, sure. And and um, you come in and at receiver, you've got Charlie Joyner. Yeah. You've got you've got Jerry Levias, who has an yeah. interesting background. He's he's the first uh, African American to break into the Southwest Conference. Yes. yes. And so he's you know he's gone through some stuff. Um, just to get to where he is. Um, what was it like, you know, kind of having those two young guys as receivers? Well, as you know, Charlie Johnson didn't really have a strong arm. So the first, my first time in the camp, well, Lynn and me both, Lynn had a strong arm too. Yeah. Uh, you know, we both overshot those guys. And they, we gave them go routes and we both overshot them by about three or four or five yards. 
And Kenny Burrow comes back, the huddle kind of laughing. He says, nobody's ever done that to me before. So I said, <laughs> get used to it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you talk about three receivers, Labias and Joyner. I mean, and then we traded them, you know, uh, it killed me, but you had this, these, this such speed on the outside, which was really fun, you know, for a guy like me, because you know, the hell of throwing the ball, you know, three, four, five yards, dink, dink, dink. I want to stretch. I want to see what you guys got, you know, send them along, you know, what the hell. We could score from anywhere on the field. Yeah. And, you know, we relied on a running game, you know, running, running game set up a play action pass, which set up the long balls. Uh, sometimes you'd have to throw deep on blitz situations or you catch them in a slant. First uh, touchdown pass I threw was a, a slant 72 to, Charlie uh, Joyner on the right side, he took it 72 yards. For, he just cut right up the seam and gone. Yeah. And nobody ever came came close to him. You know, you see him today, and he's, I guess he's in the 70s. He's seven, I'm 74. He's got to be 75, 76. He looks like he could still go. Yeah. I mean, he is, he's, he's healthy. He's yeah. still healthy. He, Kenny got arrested slowly, left us a couple of years ago, last year. What's that? Kenny Burrow left us oh, last yeah. year. He died. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Charlie Joyner was the first interview I ever did. Really? I called him up, got him. He's like, yeah, I'll do it. Yeah. And it was, and it was fun. Yeah. And you talk about, I mean, how amazing is this? He plays for Eddie Robinson <laughs> Lambling. He plays yeah. for Paul Brown and Bill Walsh in Cincinnati. Walsh was the QB's coach. Then Coriel. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, I mean, it's crazy. And, and, you know, we had Sid Gilman here. Yeah. And we could, you know, but he traded him. I, and I forget what we got for him. I remember we traded Kenny Houston. I mean, we're, we gave away, you know, a steak for five hamburgers, you know, no <laughs> offense. But yeah. You know, you don't replace a Kenny, Kenny Houston. Yeah. I, I interviewed him too. He was funny. He was, he said, uh, he would, he would sing in the church choir on Sunday morning and then go play a game that afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> There aren't many guys who do that. No. <laughs> no. Um, yeah. So so you're on this. So you're on that team. Yeah. Uh, I think you're either first or second year. Houston has nine picks for four touchdowns. He's he's got to be one of the leading scorers on the team. Uh, from you know from strong safety. Yeah. He picked um, off back to back pick sixes against John Hadle in seventy <laughs> two. No seventy. What was it? no seventy one? Okay. Back to back. And then John became a teammate of mine years after when Bum took over. Yeah, yeah, I, probably in the trade for Dickey, right? I don't know. I can't yeah, remember. I, can't, I think he came from Green Bay. I think he was in Green Bay for like. I think five you're right. Years. I think you're right. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. Um, and what? And and I have to ask. I mean, obviously, the pro, you know, NFL is a business. You've got Ed Hughes for one year, and. Not a lot is expected of the team, and you guys win your last three games, yeah. and then they fire him, and they yeah. bring in Bill Peterson, who had had success at college, but he wasn't a pro coach. He comes in, and th you know the sense I get is that there wasn't a lot of respect for him in the locker room, and that's got to be frustrating as a player. It where was extremely frustrating as a player. The guy couldn't put two sentences together. <clears throat> We're playing Denver in the first game of the year in 70, 72, and we're in Denver, and we got John Ralston from Stanford on the other side of the field, 
And we got Bill Peterson from Florida State or Rice, wherever the hell he came from. And uh, they're, you know, NFL's big on these young college coaches coming in and seeing how they're going to do their first games. Well, Peterson in the in the locker room, I swear this is the honest to God's truth. I'm this is true. And it's in my book. He gets he gets up and he he starts talking to everybody. He says, All right, man. He says, now when you get out there today, he said, I want you to stand on your helmets and, and hold a sideline under your right arm during the national anthem. And he said, now take a knee. I'm going to lead you in the Lord's prayer. And he takes a knee and he goes like this. Now I lay me down. And he, he gets nervous. And he looks over at me. And he says, Pastor Rini, you lead us. You're Catholic. I'm laughing through the Lord's prayer. We come busting out of the locker room, laughing our asses off. And the Denver fans must have thought, hey, this is going to be a cakewalk. We're going to kick the crap out of these guys today. And naturally, we got our butts handed to us. And then I remember we had this big tackle. I can't remember his name, but he wasn't the sharpest tool in the shed. But he comes off the field, and Peterson's looking up at him, yelling at him. He says, oh, Ferguson. He says, Ferguson, Ferguson, damn it, we're not going to take this standing down. I mean, like these phrases came from nowhere. But anyway, he lasted one in 13 seasons. That's the second one in 13 season. I started thinking about calling the Mets. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you traded Nolan Ryan. Do you have a spot? <laughs> yeah, right. Can you get me worked in? But yeah, that was kind of a, and then things turned around when, when Sid came, at least we had some respect. We, we had 500 seasons and then bum took over in 75 and, and then it was love you blue after that and Shangri-La. Yeah. And, and we paid our dues though. I mean, the guys that were here, me, cult, not cult, but uh, but they those guys, we we paid the price. We yeah. went through some heartbreaking seasons and wondering if we were ever gonna get out of that hellhole. But then you get a guy come in like like Bum Phillips, and we're you know, we kind of questioned him too, but not not for long. Right. I was just the best I've ever played for. And 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 right before we get to Bum, I am curious about Sid Gilman. You know, he's called the father of the modern passing game. Yeah. As as a young quarterback with a rocket arm, are you pretty proud <clears throat> for him to come in? Or it, he's he's obviously kind of at the back end of his career. So what, what was your thinking when he came in? Well, I knew he was I knew he was a good coach. I mean, he had great years in San Diego and everything. And and you know, I watched Hadel growing up as a kid throwing touchdown passes all over the field. And they like, they like to throw the ball downfield, which sure. was the same mentality, you know, get a running game, control the ball, control the clock and throw deep. When you, you know, when, when we had, you wanted to get them to fear the, the receivers outside. I mean, we had good speed on both sides and I could throw it to them. So, you know, we, we get the turn, we get a, a, a defensive back turned around. If we've got a man to man situation, even zone situations, you just, you know, you hit the slot and those guys could take it to the house anytime they caught it. Sure. Um, and and also in that, you know, kind of receiver arsenal is Billy White Shoes Johnson, who yeah. comes little D3 school, Widener College. Hey, don't don't and I'll be nice to those small schools. You know, <laughs> we have some talent. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, no doubt. The league is littered with it. And I uh, want to say I want to say this right now, right here. That guy deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. He should be in the Hall of Fame. He should have been in there this year. He should have been in here a long time ago. Yeah. Hopefully they'll put him in. So. I mean, 
he had eight or nine returns for touchdowns, including I think in, in 75, he had like four or five alone yeah. year. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, when you saw him for the first time, what was, what was your thoughts? I've never seen anybody kick returner player or anybody else that when he was back to receive kicks or punts, both sides of the field, the, the visiting team would get up on the sideline and they want, they said, I want to see this. He had, I think against Cleveland one day, he had two touchdowns. I mean, two touchdown returns. One was a kickoff. One was a punt. The punt, he fielded on about the 20-yard line, and then he starts running in circles, and he ran over to their bench, came across, lost about 12 yards, came back to our sideline. We're yelling, Billy, you go upfield. And he's just zigzagging around. He he ran 200 yards side to side, and then he turns it up the field. He probably ran 400 yards on that 75-yard kickoff return or punt return. Yeah. But I'm telling you, he lit that place up. Those guys, even the guys, you look across the field and they're shaking their heads. They never seen anything yeah. like him. Yeah. He could turn on a dime and leave you nine cents change. I mean, he was unbelievable. <laughs> That's a great one. <laughs> and, and I have to ask, I mean, since we're talking about all these different receivers, I have to ask also, you had a guy in camp uh, named Steve Largent. Oh, who... God, don't talk about that. Don't <laughs> talk to me. Let's move on. <laughs> that was Bum Phillips' biggest mistake. He'll admit he admitted it. Yep, yep. Could you could I you mean, see the talent there? Or? Oh God, he was talented. He he was smart, nice guy, quiet guy. You tell him to run a seventeen and a half yard comeback, you could take a tape measure out there, and I guarantee it was seventeen and a half yards. Yeah. And he he caught everything. He caught everything I threw him. And I told Bum, I said, "What are you doing?" I said, "This guy, he's catching everything I throw him, Bum." Oh, he's too small. He, he I don't care how big he is. He's he's good. <laughs> and you know he. Sent him off, and sure enough, he came back to haunt us every time we played him. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. What a, he was a great man and a great football player. Yeah. Much better man though. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, so then so then Bum comes in. So you've so you've got Bum Phillips, and uh, and you got to start winning. In in '75, yeah. you guys go ten and four, and it was really interesting. Those four losses were just to two teams: two to Cincy, two to Pittsburgh. Unfortunately that meant that those two teams finished in front of you in the, in the division. Right. And, and there so- were three, there were three teams that were 10 and four that year in that division. And yeah. I think, I think the, uh, the four, the fourth team um, was like nine and six, yeah, nine, Cleveland. And, nine and five Cleveland. Yeah. That and- was the best division in football. I thought. Yeah. Oh, it was, they were, they were so great during the, uh, during the seventies. Um, and all those, the, the four games you guys lost were all close, but just, yeah. You lost him. Um, and then, and then, yeah, Hadel comes in. What's it like having him? Here's a guy who, you know, you grew up watching on TV. He's obviously won AFL championships. He's also probably like 37 years old. What's it yeah. like having him come in? <laughs> Very educational. He, I, John, I, lo- I love John. He's, he was, he was my roommate and uh, he, we'd go out, you know, after games together, we'd go, after practices go have a beer every now and then and, and i mean he just was one of the nicest human beings god ever created and uh smart real smart and uh liked to teach he liked to help you know he'd come off the field and say hey when you see that guy over there and he's in that position shading the inside hit a corner or a go route on him boy next play we do it but every time he gave you advice you listen but mm-hmm. one of the nicest guys funny everybody loved john 
Everybody loved John, the whole organization and the fans. Yeah. No better person than him. Yeah. And what, what was um, what was your first impression of Plum Phillips? I mean, this is he's about as unique a character as there is in NFL well, history. Well, I'll tell you what, and, and I and Bum knew this. Um, I remember when he announced when when uh, Bud Adams announced Bum being the head coach. You know, I didn't know Bum. I he was a defensive coach. We, yeah. we kind of, you know, we had our separation, offensive and defensive. And I was close to King Hill. I mean, King Hill discovered me at Santa Clara. And then he finally got to coach me and taught me a lot more than I ever knew. And uh, I was, you know, grateful for it. And I always thought, and looking back on it, it was it was stupid of me. But anyway, um, I called Bud and I said, look, I said, I think you're making a mistake here. I mean, no offense. I mean, I like bombing all, but this guy, King Hill, should be our, our head coach, in my opinion. You know, just take it for what it's worth. He said, I appreciate it, but we're going to go with Bum. I said, okay, you know, so I, and then after the first meeting, you know, Bum says, okay, he said, we're not going to play the Houston Oilers. They're not in our schedule. So he says, we're not going to hit the Houston Oilers. We're not going to scrimmage. We're not going to do hitting drills, tackling drills. He said, if you guys don't know how to hit, by now and tackle by now, then we haven't done our jobs and we should be fired. He had these little idiosyncrasies that made such common sense. Sure. And we went out in shorts and shoulder pads and we wore helmets most of the time just to protect ourselves in case we ran into each other. But uh, that saved our legs. It got us, it, it helped, helped our conditioning. And, uh, you know, by the time Sunday comes around, we're ready to kill somebody. Yeah. And we were, we were pretty aggressive under, under his, under his tenure here that's for sure but uh and also not that he would have known it <clears throat> but now we know it that not hitting all those weekday practices yeah. for you know the better part of a decade you know it's going to help you guys out a lot more now and, and you know what i see now i see these guys they invite like the texans invited the dolphins in for a week of scrimmaging I mean, you're killing your players you know and, and it's 105 degrees out here you know you save your legs i mean we i remember Jim Young was a walk-on, and we were up at uh, Nacogdoches. Nacogdoches, Texas, in August is the is hotter than the the, the Mojave Desert, and it's humid. And you've sure. got these fifty-foot pine trees, and the football field was cut out of these pine trees. There's no wind, no nothing. And Jim Young, who was built like a brick house, and he was a walk-on. He was a fireman, hmm. and all of a sudden he goes down and he's cramping up and I'm standing on it. I'm standing on his arm on his wrist. Carl Mox holding me down by my shoulders and he's lifting me off the ground with Carl Mock holding me down. I mean, this guy was strong. Yeah. We're trying to get an IV in him. So he give him some saline because he was, he was getting, he was turning blue. He was mm -hmm. getting ready to go. And so, you know, finally we got him stabilized and packed in ice and everything else. And, Bum came out and he said, he told the trainer, he said, I want you to go, go down. He said, get some bottles, get some water. He says, you guys take a drink whenever you want to take a drink. There's no water breaks anymore. When you're thirsty, go get, go get hydrated. And, and that was smart. But, yeah. uh, you know, that, that was, that was scary. You know, you see a guy like that and, uh, you know, you can't stand in his arm and get it out so we can get an IV in him. Pretty stout fellow. Yeah. Yeah. I was on my team. Right. 
so so this team is is you know building. I mean, you've got Bum, you've got these receivers, Kenny Burrows, White Chief Johnson. Uh, you've got you know the defense with Bethe and Culp and and uh, you know Robert Brazil, and then in you you kind of have a disappointing year in '77. You're eight and six. I mean you're winning, but it, it's kind of a disappointing yeah. year. You get Earl Campbell in the draft. Yep. He's won the Heisman Trophy at Texas. He's obviously you know kind of rewritten the college record books at that point. He's obviously a Texas legend, right? So yep. he's going to get you know the, the locals are going to love him. He comes in. What what's your first thought when you see him come in? Well, the guy was, he wasn't in a hurry to do anything. You know, he, of course, he wasn't in a hurry to go down either. Right. But, you know, he just kind of comes lumbering in. He's got the biggest legs I've ever seen on a man in my life. And, uh, you know, we, we cut him loose. And he had a hard time adjusting at first because the type of, you know, the running we did out of the I formation, you know, I'd bring the ball back to him. And he kind of take an arc and it was hard for him to train himself to get that arc because he was at the wishbone and, and, and what, what they did at Texas, they hit the hole right now. I mean, mm-hmm. you just turn around and give it to him and let him go. But, you know, we kind of got it to him deep and we did that like zone blocking to where we could create a crease. And sometimes it might be the seven hole here, but he might break it back over here to the four hole. So his cutbacks were important. And finally it took him two games to learn that Carl Mox says one time he ran into his bag and damn it. He says, open your eyes. <laughs> so finally he learned. And when he did, you know, he was, he was the only thing that bothered me about Earl's he couldn't catch a cold. He right. was the worst hands I've ever thrown to in my life. And he knows it. I'm not ashamed to say it, but I told him, I said, Earl, if you could just catch the ball, I said, I could throw it to you down there 10 yards downfield and then you could just turn around and run over those little safeties i said instead of me giving it to you back here 10 yards behind these big guys and having to run through them before you get to the safeties yeah so i'm trying to save your life here (laughs) but he just he couldn't do it yeah speaking of bum he had two two of i mean there's you know a thousand great bum quotes but two of them were about i thought they were great one of them was um Somebody when, it's third, when it's third and a mile, we won't give it to Earl. Because <laughs> <laughs> he couldn't finish the mile. He couldn't training. finish a mile in his test at the at training camp. Of course, he didn't yeah. have to. Some reporters like, you know, yeah. what do you think of that? And he's like, well, when it's third and a mile, I won't give it to him. <laughs> yeah, we'll make Dan throw it. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I also love he said something like, is, is Earl in a class by himself? He's like, well, I don't know if he's in a class by himself, but let's just say that when that class gets together, it doesn't take long to do the roll call. That's right. That's true. Yeah, he was uh, awesome, man. I tell you, he uh, we're playing the Rams and that famous that you see it played on TV all the time. He's knocked in the backfield. It's kind of off balance. He great. He gets his balance on his left leg, which isn't his dominant side. And he just Isaiah Robertson's coming in. He's got a full head of steam and he's just going to level him out. And Earl just headbutts him right in the chest like this. And the next thing that hits the ground is the back of Isaiah's head. Yeah, I mean, and then he just steps all over him and goes another 20 yards, dragging Freddie Dreyer and all these guys downfield another 15 yards. Yeah, he was he was he was a devastating running back. I mean, he there weren't many people that wanted to square him up. That's for damn sure. Oh, no. And I I, I still I mean, of of all the iconic Monday night football games, you know, I can think of 70s and 80s and all that, that game against Miami. They're they're only a year or two removed from their Super Bowls. And you guys are, you know, on the come. 
and he scores four touchdowns, rushes for like almost 200 yards. 199. 199, yeah, and he's just plowing people. And, and that, you know, last, that last run, 80 yards, Yeah, you know, Bum says, get just get a couple first downs because it was like going back and forth. Whoever had the ball last is going to win the ball game. Right. So you know, we just get a couple, get a couple first downs. So I'm sitting there and I, you know, we called most of the plays, running plays at the line of scrimmage because I could see the alignments and we set the linemen up where they had good blocks. So I called toss 38 and he takes it upfield and he's going 80 yards. And I'm, I'm walking off the field looking at Bum and I'm going, I go, he says, or seven points, that'll work. So, <laughs> we'll, take, we'll take the score. So. <laughs> uh, but he, uh, yeah, that was that was Earl's night for sure. He, he and that was Love You Blue. We we were born that night. And yeah, first time know, I ever no, saw it. You talk about Bum Phillips and Earl Campbell in the state of Texas, and people want them. They're icons here. Oh, absolutely. As should be. Yeah, and that year. So so two things happened that year. So first of all, so that's your first playoff year, and yeah. and you guys make a nice run. You you go in, you beat Miami, you beat New England, um, who were. They were well. They they might have been the top seed that year. I mean, they they certainly had a hell of a season. They were. I think we were the wild card. Yeah, and but before we got to that point, you're playing a regular season game against the Steelers, and you guys, it's looking like you guys are going to be a playoff team. It's you know kind of late in the season, and Steve Furness crushes you, and you take yeah. you know it's kind of one of those you're exposed. You've just thrown the ball. You break three ribs. You come back in the game. You keep playing. You've punctured a lung, I think. I mean, you've, you've done all kinds of damage. And you, you finish the game, but then, oh, by the way, you're in the hospital that week. And tell the story, because I, I just think it's great the way you tell it. Tell, tell the story of, like, you know, who comes in and visits you and, and what that ultimately led to. Byron Donzis, who invented the flak jacket and later had a line of, of, of football equipment, uh, there was a knock at the door in my, my uh, hotel or my hospital room. And he sticks his head and he's Miss Pastorini. And yeah, can I come in? Yeah, come in. Well, he's carrying a bag, a brown paper bag, and the guy behind him is carrying a baseball bat. And I'm thinking, these guys bet the ranch on the game. We lost, and they're going to pummel me to death and haul my ass out of here in that bag. And I can't even reach the, the, the button to call the nurse. So this guy, he's taking the thing out of his bag and he holds it up to his ribcage like this. His buddy, he does, you know, spits and grabs a bat and waxing three times. He doesn't even blink. I go, I want one of those. Okay. He disappears. And then Tuesday at practice, he shows up. He's got that same bag again and he's got a Navy seal life vest. Okay. Navy seal life vests are a series of very like half inch tubes that are in a jacket, air jacket. And they're just they're It's a pattern going around your whole, your whole body. And he had a piece of Kevlar on it over where my ribs were broken back here. And uh, the theory behind it was when you hit it, it would disperse around you instead of the point of impact. You would never, I get hit on it and wouldn't feel it because it goes around you. Yeah. So that was a, that was a big plus because it was, I wasn't going to get hurt. I wasn't going to get hurt again. But um, then um, we play Miami and I played, I played the last three games of the year or two games of the year. And then the playoffs with, with, with the uh, rib protection. I, I played with it after that all the time. 
we're we're playing, you know, in the playoffs, and uh, I get hit by Bo Camper or somebody, and I mean they're they're running, they're they're running a blitz, and so we wound up playing a playing a good game. We wound up beating them in Miami. Then we go up to New England the next weekend, and I mean they're they're coming after us, and I've got to I've got to throw. I mean they're going to shut Earl down. They're going to shut everything down. They're going to force me to throw because they think I'm hurt. Yeah. And I, I got a couple of blitzes and I got the ball off and made a, you know, made a completion. And then, you know, here they come again. I got hit right on the, right on the protector. And uh, I can't remember the, the linebacker. He said, well, I guess that thing works <laughs> as, as I'm getting up. <laughs> so then they, uh, they had a full all out blitz and I took three steps back and I just threw the ball as far as I could and got hit as I'm going back and hit Kenny Burrow on a, touchdown and then that broke the game wide open it hit two more quick picks or quick touchdowns on that in the first half I think so we were up 21 nothing before before halftime yeah so we had we had good control of the game they backed off they said okay you can throw so we had a good balanced attack after that and gave him a little earl left and right and then a couple play action passes hit Barber on a touchdown so those, those are two of my better games it uh it was a false sense of security because I don't know if it was the flak jacket or if it was the Novocaine and Marcaine that they shot me up with 24 times a game. Right before we went out, they'd shoot me six times and then shoot me six more times. And then they'd listen. Dr. Fain would listen on my rib cage with a stethoscope. I said, what are you listening for, Doc? He said, listening to see if I punctured your lung. How deep did you go? He said, all the way to your lung. Well, if you know your 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 ribs are kind of like your fingers with skin over them, so they they deaden the the outer part, which is the the good stuff on ribs when you eat ribs, and then they got the gristle part underneath, and then that would last about a half, and then you know, if we had to have a two minute warning comeback thing, that would have been tough to do because they'd have had to pull me over there and shoot me again. Oh my God. I don't know if it was, you know, just not feeling the pain. The bad part about it is by doing the shots, I ruined my arm and I, I lost my arm strength after that. And I had paralysis of the serratus anterior muscle, which is attached to the lower part of your scapular. And all its job to do is when you throw, it gets out of the way and rolls around your rib cage. Well, mm -hmm. mine wings out. Mm -hmm. And so I had to wear a brace to hold it in along with the black jacket in order to play the, the rest of my career out. But I mean, I never, to this day, I can't, I can't throw with a zone. Wow. Wow. I didn't know that part. And the sad part, I mean, I could throw a ball 87 yards in the air and the CB throw now is pathetic. <laughs> <laughs> but we had that competition on ABC one time where they had all the NFL quarterbacks there, everybody. I mean, Greasy, Bradshaw, me, Plunkett, Manning. And um, so we all stepped up and winged it. And I won that particular portion of the, the the contest and threw it 87 yards in the air and I haven't seen anybody and I'm not blowing smoke here I just haven't seen anybody that could match that yeah there have been a couple of guys that throw it 83 which is pretty good but not 87 yeah that's amazing um and then and then you guys face Pittsburgh in the uh in the AFC championship game yeah. and it's even though the final score sounds like a blowout it was actually a fairly close game and then you guys fumbled three times in the yeah. last minute of the half. I mean, the game ended there. Yeah. 
Well, um, and it was it was horrible weather. I mean, and, but you know they they play in it. You know we had to play in it. That's not an excuse, but yeah, it, it sure would have been better. And then the next year we go the same thing. We got to play them up there, but we're playing them late in the season and in the dome, and we're on the one foot line and clock's running out, and I call timeout because I you know I was thinking. I don't want to go up to Pittsburgh. You know, we hit a tiebreaker. I want to stay here in Houston. So I come running off the field and Bum goes, I like the way you're thinking. He said, but it doesn't matter. Just go ahead. I said, okay. So I come back out in the field and Joe Green is livid. Joe Green is threatening to rip my head off on national TV. And I'm walking up the line of scrimmage. I go, Joe, I'm going to fall on it. I'm not going to score. Knock it. And he's pointing at me. He's, I'll kill you. And he's all these obscenities. So I take the ball and I fall back and he's standing over me like his eyes said, I knew you weren't going to do that. I said, don't do that to me again. I'm too old for that stuff. <laughs> That's great. And then, and then, and so, yeah, so then you guys are going through the playoffs again. And this time you're, oh, let's see what you do. You, you beat Denver and then you beat San Diego and you're, yeah. you and Burrow and Campbell yeah. missed the San Diego game. Yeah. We, That's when Vernon Perry has could be the greatest defensive game. Unbelievable. Ever Unbelievable four game. Four and then, and then Giff, Nielsen, Giff Nielsen kept the game in check, and and but our defense won that game, no doubt about it. Yeah. But, but yeah, Gifford did a hell of a job playing, calling the game. Um, <clears throat> but the bad, the bad part about the injuries that we had, I ruptured my groin. Mm-hmm. And it was on a weird play. I was scrambling, trying to move and crossing over. And I mean, there's a knot about that big on my groin to this day. And I mean, my whole leg was purple the whole week before the game. And there's no way I could play. Right. And I was doubtful if I could play against Pittsburgh the following week, but we did. But Kenny Burrow had a bruised hip. Earl had a pull groin. So we just kind of sucked it up and played. Yeah. Bum came to me and said, can you play? I said, I'm about, I'm 80%. He said, 80% of you is better than 100% of what I got. I said, okay, I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> which which then sets up, as I as I mentioned in the intro, yeah. uh, there's there's a lot of kind of like legend about like how exactly it played out. Basically, that play, you're down seven late in the yeah. third yeah. against the Steelers, right? So it's, it's the end of the third quarter. Yeah. It's the end of the third quarter. Yeah. And you make the pass. It's from, I think, the six-yard line. You hit Renfro. Let's be honest. He clearly catches it, and he clearly catches it inbounds. Not even up for debate. And it would have tied the game. So you're going to be yeah. in the fourth quarter tied with Pittsburgh in yeah. Pittsburgh. Yeah. Um, but they they rule it an incompletion. You have to kick a field goal. They get two touchdowns in the fourth and just kind of walk away with it. Well, that. we have it changed the whole complexity of the game because now we have to play catch up. Right. We have to take the chances. Right. I like our chances better with the score tied because I wasn't going to take any chances or have to take any chances. But we could kind of matriculate the ball down the field, quote an old famous coach. Kansas City but you know we could I'd like to take our chances when it called for it but our defense at that time in history was as good as their defense was if not maybe a shade better but they gave Bradshaw and crew enough headaches just like I got headaches from the steel curtain sure and I thought that you know when you got to play catch up against them though forget it you're you're gonna you're gonna screw up and you're gonna lose Right. But I would have liked that to see, you know, they all say, well, we'd have beat them anyway. Yeah. And then it's fine. Yeah. You know, right. We'll never know. But that's yeah, why yeah. you have instant replay in the game today because of that play. 
Right. Mom Olson's in the in the box. He's saying this is an example of where they need instant replay in football. He yeah. said this is this is such a costly error, and it and it hurt the Houston Oilers. Yeah. And it did. It did. But that's so you can all thank me for slowing up the game now. You know, me and, <laughs> well, me and, and Mike Renfro. But with that, you basically leave Houston. Now, it, what what exactly was you know kind of the reasoning? I mean, obviously they trade you for Kenny Stabler, yeah. So you're going to go to Oakland. Kenny's going to come to Houston. But uh, what uh, what what precipitated the trade? Back up a year when okay. we lost in Pittsburgh and that slush thing and all that stuff. And I had I had a horrible game. I I fumbled a couple snaps. I, I threw about I don't know four or five interceptions. Just played poorly. And I can't you know. I came to the office the next day and I, I talked to Bum. I said, look, I said, I love you too much. I love this team too much. If I'm the problem, get rid of me. I said, I do not want to be the reason we lose. And uh, he said, oh, he said, just calm down. He said, that's a, that Irish Italian heritage of yours. You're just, you're taking it too personally. Just, just forget about it. And I go, no, I'm serious. I said, I want to be traded if I'm the guy. If I'm the reason, then, then he said, I'll make you a deal. He said, if you feel the same way next year, he said, I'll trade you anywhere you want to go. I said, okay, deal. Well, the year goes along and, you know, more injuries and stuff. We you know, heartbreak and all that. And then the, that loss, especially to, to Pittsburgh at that, that time. I was just devastated. And I just, you know, I'm I'm looking for a place to jump out of the plane on the way back to Houston. And bum, nothing was ever said of that again, that meeting the year before. Nothing. It was never brought up again. Nothing. I'd forgotten about it. And bum's coming back and I see him and I've already got a few scotches down me and a couple of beers. And I'm sitting there and, and he comes up to me, Daniel. He puts his hands on my face and says, I love you. He said, you're a warrior. He said, you still want to be traded? And I'm thinking, where's this coming from? I I, I mean, I, I don't know what to say. I should have, I should have just said, well, no, no, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it later. Yeah. Just drop it. But no, I'm sitting there going, and then I start thinking, and the more the insecure me goes, well, crap, maybe he maybe he wants to trade me. Said, well, yeah, I guess so. And then he, he kind of was taken back a little bit. He said, okay. He said, where do you want to go? I said, West Coast. I figured I'd go back home. Mm. And I, I thought about calling him and going and just say, you know, I don't want to talk about this. Let's just forget about it. Well, he had the, he had the deal worked in a couple of days. So it made me feel well, maybe he wanted to trade me. Mm. And, you know, if that's the case, then, you know, so be it. So I accepted it, went out there, had all the, had other problems out there. But anyway, um, to the years after we were all done playing and everything, going down to Bums Ranch, he and I used to have a lot of talks. And I, I just asked him, we're out in the property one day riding around as Gator. I said, why the hell did you ask me that question then? Yeah. I said, I mean, that was the lowest point in my life. And I said, I'd totally forgotten about it. I, I just... I never, I never remembered it until you brought it up then. And I said, well, God, maybe you want to trade me. I said, was that the case? He said, no, hell no. He said, I should have told you, no, I'm not going to trade. You're going to stay here. You're going to play for me again. I said, I wish, I wish you would. Cause I would have loved to finish my career in Houston as it was. I did, but 
you know, going out to Oakland and breaking my leg against Kansas City. And then Plunkett took over, did a good job, took us to the Super Bowl. God bless him. You know, he been through his heartaches, too, through his career. Sure. And, you know, did a hell of a job doing so, you know, but then I was the odd man out. And then we come to training camp and, uh, you know, it was an important training camp for me because I needed to pass my physical in order to get my contract. I had uh, for the first three years of the contract were guaranteed upon signing. The next three years were guaranteed upon passing a physical. So they put me on the physically un unable to perform list. So I'm on, I'm kind of on pins and needles now because I've got to figure out, you know, what's going to happen. And then um, Davis comes out and he says, I want to see Pastor Ernie throw. So I went out and threw to Bobby Chandler and I was, you know, throwing as best I could. I had, I had, a, I had my shoulder separated in the off season in a charity bike race. Yeah. So I had to go through all that. And then, uh, but I was throwing the ball good, hurt like hell, but you wouldn't know it. But I was throwing darts and, you know, he says, okay, activate him. I went, thank you. And that was, you know, past the physical, made the team. I got my money. The next week we played New England. I come in with a deficit. I bring us back to go ahead in the game. It's like I didn't miss a beat. I felt good. And I remember Upshaw in the huddle saying, oh, look at the young kid here. He's, he's all excited. I said, yeah, I'm excited to be back. Not to see you, but excited to be back but anyway i threw a, a ball that hit I, I think cliff branch was on a crossing route and i hit him in the chest the ball bounced up in the air steve nelson intercepts the ball game over it's a preseason game last one of the year i said hey i played i played good brought us back you know stats and all that good next day he calls me in his office and he says um i'm cutting you i said okay you can send my checks here and he went F you, I'm not paying you. So then I had to fight him for 16 years, which bankrupted me twice. And I wound up leaving football with nothing. I, I, I actually left football with less than what I did when I came in because of that man. And I, I have no respect for that man at all. Yeah. And we went through, you know, all the courts went to the Supreme Court. I mean, it's case law, sports case law study, that mm -hmm. case. And I won it, but... I lost it because all the deferred compensation I had, I used for lawyers Yeah, and they didn't, I didn't get anything. And he, and when you went there, you, uh, you, you said something along the lines of, you know, it's kind of interesting going in here because, you know, I've heard a lot of things about the yeah. guy. You know, some yeah. guys love him and revere him. And yeah. some guys, it kind of, I, I didn't realize until I watched the documentary on Ken Stabler, I would have thought Stabler was like the perfect Al Davis guy, but no. apparently Davis was in his head, you know, a lot of his Davis, Davis was in his head. He was in my head. And he got into Plunkett's head after toward, you know, Plunkett wound up getting benched next year playing Mark Wilson. And then he comes back, he comes back and, uh, and then uh, takes, takes him to another Super Bowl, and then, and gets, and gets axed again. Yeah. I mean, he, he got the same treatment as any of us did. It was just, I don't know. I, I don't know what made the man tick. He wasn't, he wasn't a very fair human being. I don't, I don't think I just, you know, everywhere. well, I got a ring, but it didn't matter. So it really didn't. I, g I gave it to charity and, you know, I don't, I don't, it's sad. It was not the way I wanted to go out. I would have much rather played out here with bum and when bum left then I'd leave, you know, or whatever. Yeah. I didn't have that many more years left of me. You know, we, 
I was pretty banged up toward the end of my career. I mean, my yeah. I had a lot of injuries, especially upper body, shoulders and, and whatnot, clavicle and you know, just a lot of a lot of wear and tear, you know, and your body can only take so much of that. You know, we couldn't play till we were 42 if we played all the time. Right. Back then. We got yeah. hit and we got hit hard and we got hit a lot. Yeah, a lot of the protections. Not taking not. anything away from the quarterbacks today. It's still a, it's still a you know a tough game, but you know it was different when we played. Yeah, and I, and I know at the end, I mean, obviously there was like a year or two with the Rams and the Eagles, and there was one yeah. last shot where Bum was now in New Orleans, and and yeah. you were thinking about going down there and, and you know kind of working out with him, and then they brought in Richard Todd, and that was just kind of it. It was time for drag racing. Well, I went I went down there. I went down there. In fact, um, uh, there was another young quarterback. Um, it was the offensive coordinator for Texas A&M. Oh, Harold Dickey. Okay. And he was, he and I became good friends. And mm -hmm. Richard, you know, was a nice guy and everything else. So anyway, I went down and I did all the off-season work. And I was down there for four weeks, you know, working out. And then the plan was to go down to the training camp and then shoot mm -hmm. it out, you know. And uh, I'm up in in uh, Vail, uh, Steamboat Springs. I've got my truck ready to go. The phone rings. I get. A, I pick it up. It's Jack Cherry. He said, "Hang on a second, Mister Mister Lincoln." He said, "Coach wants to talk to you." So he gets on the phone. He says, uh, "Dan." He says, I, "I I can't I can't justify bringing you into camp." So I'll have, you know, three high priced quarterbacks here. And I said, "Bum, I'm a free agent. I don't have a contract. I'm just trying out. You know, consider me an arm saver. I just want a chance because I can't do it." And that's that ripped my heart out. And that's it. I said, okay, I'm done. Yeah. That was, the and, final, that was the final straw. And that was kind of, even though we talked about it after that, but that was the one that, that just kind of ripped my heart out because I thought it was true. He did want to get rid of me. And uh, even though contrary to what he told me years later, I, th I think deep down, maybe there was some, something I did to do that. So and that makes me feel bad. And and then kind of parallel to your entire athletic career, of, you know, football and baseball, you'd always had a passion for uh, racing cars, you know, speed, 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 <laughs> He's a speed junkie. Yeah. yeah and, and part of it was, I mean, I read a great anecdote that you were learning how to drive a stick shift when you were like seven or eight years old. You're like hanging off the steering wheel. Yeah. <laughs> and and your dad, uh, well, mom and dad, I guess created a, a dirt track behind their restaurant right Tried to drum up business and oh by the way got you on a track early yeah and uh and so you know throughout your career you were doing different things in like the world of speed and as soon as your career ended you get into drag racing nhra drag racing i did and i had i had a guy that i raced boats with while i was still playing football the Bobby Rowe, who is a funny car racer back in the series, back in the day in the 60s and 70s. And uh, he was my crew chief and responsible for introducing me to Raymond Beadle, who was a Blue Max. And Raymond had a car that he wanted me to drive for him and then bum next that. And I said, well, I'll have to wait till my career's over. So anyway, I got these guys and they, they helped me out. We got a car. I basically hawked the house i took a second out of my house up in in steamboat which you know that was part of you know, i was trying to make a living and i i didn't know what to do i mean i was never in business before 
and I never made enough money to invest in business. And all I tried to do was save as much as I could to not piss it away and, and have a, have a retirement of some sort. But, um, got into, we did the match racing around the country, uh, which paid the bills to go to the national events. And then we spend all that money at the national events and then money we get on the road and go do these exhibitions and get paid 10, 15,000, sell 10, $15,000 worth of t-shirts and then go back to the next national events. We just kind of barnstormed it that way through the first year. And then finally we got Coors Light sponsors and that uh, we got a new car. We had, it was funny. We, we won the Southern nationals when I was, I was done. I said, I, I had, I don't have a dollar to my name. And I had a friend that was backing me during the boats and uh, the car, Larry Enderley, who was an oil man here from Baytown, Texas. He loved racing. And, um, he said, I said, Larry, I got to hang it up. I'm going to sell the stuff, sell the truck and everything. Just get out. I said, I can't, can't do it anymore. And uh, I said, I don't want you to put any more money into it. He said, now, Dan, he said, look, he said, let's go to the Southern Nationals. See how that goes. See, I got a good feeling about this. So we go to the Southern Nationals. I win the race. So we won enough money to go to Denver. I think the next week we go up to Denver, make a presentation to Coors. And this guy that walks in is looks like Mr. Peepers. And I'm thinking, no way this guy's going to want to go racing. And then come to find out later, he was a racing addict. He loved racing. So anyway, I'm sitting there. I'm making a half effort proposal presentation. Yeah, cards here. And this is what these are demographics. And he goes, I like it. Let's go. Let's sign him up. So, I, you know, we got 300,000, 350,000 for three years, which is about half the budget we really needed at the time, but we made it work. And so, um, you know, we, we won the Southern nationals that was before that. And then after winning, getting the, the money. And then unfortunately we had, we had a struggle the first year with the car and found out that, you know, we had a baffling problem in the fuel tank, which caused all our problem. And then we were chasing that. Those things are such temperamental beasts. And I mean, beasts and to calm them down is just, there aren't many people in the world that can do that. And, you know, to get that fine tune where you can get those, those wheels spinning at the right rate of speed and the clutch applications and the horsepower and not dropping cylinders and whatnot. It's a science. It really is a science and there aren't many people that know how to do it. And I had a couple of guys that could do it very well. So, and you, and you could get, now I, I know next to nothing about drag racing, but you could get your car going. First of all, your car was called quarterback sneak. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's fantastic. And the fastest I ever went was uh, at a five, 5.118 seconds at 287 miles an hour. And that's in a quarter mile. Okay. Which is nothing today. These right. guys are going, they're going, they just went 338 this last weekend in Brainerd. Uh, who was it? that went 338. Salinas. Salinas went 338 in uh, 3.68 seconds. 338 miles an hour in 3.68 seconds in a thousand feet you talk about acceleration those those things are god they're just listen you get the money together we'll go i can put a team together <laughs> and you, you, you one of one of early on i mean I, I don't know much about the sport but early on you you're in a um a heat with big daddy don garlitz yeah. who's obviously like one of the legends of the sport and you beat him what was yep. that like? Pissed him off. He was, uh, he wouldn't, you know, 
we if he'd have agreed to match race me around the country, we could have brought in some top dollar. But he wouldn't do it. He said because he had to run too hard to beat me. Right. So we this was this was a rail. I'll never forget this. We're doing a match race in Portland, Oregon, and I had a Peterbilt truck, used Peterbilt truck, and it now I'd have no money. I'm I'm all I have is the money from that race. I'm taking it to Columbus, Ohio, and I'm going to race there, and hopefully we do all right, you know. So now I'm sitting there, and I I don't have a I don't have a nickel to my name, and my Peterbilt truck cracks the waterheads, and it's the engine shot so now i gotta get a new tractor tra a new tractor for the trailer <clears throat> i go into a company up there that, that had of all of all things <clears throat> it was a cat a, a cab over kenworth and it was blue it was order blue and red and white it had the <laughs> red and white stripe the order blue cab and my trailer was black everything was black on the rig so, I mean, I walked into this dealership. I said, look, I, I don't have, you don't have to do a credit check on me. I'm going to tell you right now, I've had this problem, that problem, bankruptcy. I, I got I said, I got to get to Columbus, Ohio in 72 hours so that I can race and make money and survive. He said, he cut the deal for me. He said, okay. He knocked like, gave me the car, the truck half price. It was like, I guess it was a $50,000. He gave it to me at $30,000 something like that. I said, he said, would you put, would you put our store logo on your car? I said, where do you want it? <laughs> and I mean, we, and we had it on the front nose where everybody could see it. So it was Northwest KW or something like that. So anyway, I drove the truck and I had my, my crew was, was sitting there waiting for me. And I drove for 70 hours to get there. I got, we left on, it was Saturday and we left on Monday and I got there Friday, Friday evening, you know, Friday morning at four o'clock in the morning. And I hadn't, I hadn't, the guy next to me in the cab, we were illegal as hell. I mean, I, you're not supposed to drive that long and everything. I mean, I was, I was seeing bubbles. So anyway, they, they sent me to bed. I went, I went to sleep for about five hours. We have one qualifying run or it's, it rained out a couple of runs. So they made a special run for me they said okay give him an extra give him an extra minute so they got rained out there was one qualifying run left and it was the last one of saturday session and they're telling the story about what happened and all this stuff coming there and what i went through and everything and i come up and i qualify ninth i i mean i had a good run busted down a good number qualified ninth well gartlett's qualified number one so number one races number nine that's the way the structure is two races, 10, three races, so forth. So, you know, we're the first pair, not, not the first pair, but probably the second or third pair of the day. And uh, we ran comparably and uh, I beat him on a hole shot and he was pissed to this day. He was pissed, Yeah. but you know, I felt pretty good about it. And we yeah. made it all, we made it all the way to the semis where I lost to Connie Coletta and then he wound up winning the race. And then later on, uh, we went to uh, Georgia or Southern Nationals. And then that's when I won the race there. I won my seventh race of all things, number seven. Number seven. <laughs> yeah. Do you still have a team? Pardon me? Do you still have your team? No, no. I get... Okay. 
that's a good way to lose money is have a race team. <laughs> it's, a good, it's a good hole to pour money through. Uh, if you don't have a sponsorship, you don't want to do it out of your pocket. And there's, there's some privateers that I see doing it today, and I feel so sorry for them. And there have been some guys that, have, you know, Wilkerson, he's hung around for many, many years. We used to go down the circuit together. John Force and I used to go down the circuit together. And, uh, you know, these guys really parlayed their their wares into some serious bucks and doing some really good stuff. Sure. Not cheap. It's not cheap at all. That nitromethane is expensive and it wears out parts. Uh, OK, well, I I, I I saw a quote that I just loved that I wanted to read to you as uh, as we kind of wrap things up. I mean, obviously, it's been a lot of fun walking through, you know, kind of the growing up years and not your years in Houston playing with, you know, playing for Bum and, you know, playing with Earl Campbell and all that. Um, you came to Houston at an interesting point in time for that city. It was kind of on the come and, you know, and, you know, here comes this young quarterback at the same time. You said the city was a lot like me. We were grown up fast. We were flexing our muscles and we were untamed. <laughs> that's just, a, that's just it's a great. True. It's yeah. true. It was the fastest growing city in the country at that time. When I came here in 71, it was like a town of just under 700,000 people. And by the time 78 79 it was like up to about maybe a million and i'll tell you what when we came back in 1978 79 people people were impressed with about the people all at the stadium what they didn't see were the people that were parked along the exit to the airport 30 miles away down jfk boulevard down the beltway and down 45 we never passed one car going or coming we just had our motorcade yeah. And then we pull we pull into the, the the dome, and all you saw were these crazy people yelling and screaming. We had a, the whole town turned out for that for us both years. It was yeah. amazing. I mean, it it gives me goosebumps to think about it now. And I have people come up to me today, of course, they're older and they're they're like your age, and they say, "Hey, when I was young, and thanks, you could have left that part off, you know." <laughs> but they uh, they're grateful, and I say, "Hey, man, we were grateful for y'all. You were the best fans ever, ever." Yeah. Yeah, it was it was a love affair. I mean, I, you know, I was in Cleveland and Minnesota watching and it was amazing. Love you, Blue. Yeah. Uh, well, Dan, I have to tell you, it's been great catching up with you and hearing all these stories. I, I could listen to this stuff all day. Thank you so much for coming on Chasing Hardware. Rich, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Take care. And thank you for listening to Chasing Hardware. I've been your host, Rich Lumello. The Michael Stanley Band brought us in and the suburbs with Life is Like are going to take us out. Speak to you next time. Tonight, it feels like life. Come on. Life is like. Life is like. Life is like what it is. Life is like. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? 
Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.